This is the current federal tax developments for the week of February the 14th, 2022. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by your State Society of CPAs and by Kaplan Financial Education. I'm Ed Zollers, and I'll be talking to you about some of the stuff that went on this week in the area of taxes. We're going to try doing something a little different here today. We'll see if it works well. For those of you watching on the video side, we're going to try to actually uh, show you some information via the browser uh, to kind of give you some more direct tie-ins to what we're talking about here because a lot of what happened this week is going to be things that were posted to the web, actually is part of the issue here, by the IRS, which has become one of their favorite places to put things into motion. So we'll talk about how we're going there. Some things we're going to cover this week is the IRS did give us more information on three specific issues with their changes in their methodology for handling research credit claims. So we'll talk about that. We're also going to find out that the LBNI division announces a new partner basis campaign that's going to be started. So we'll discuss that briefly, what it is, what it would impact, what they'll be looking at, and how this differs from the tax basis capital issue that we've been talking about on the tax returns. Actually, how it differs from it, but how it also probably is the next step after the tax basis capital reporting rules, in essence, and how that allows them to identify returns that look promising for a basis question that'll come up. We're also going to talk about the IRS finally in response to the criticism they got for their taxpayer relief, only stop those notices when they said, hey, we don't think you filed your return, even though we have a check in the exact amount that you put down on your paper filed return. That was your tax due. We think we don't know where to apply that. Yeah, that was the only one they stopped. This week, the IRS decided that they probably could stop other notices, you know, minor ones like notice of intent to levy and that kind of stuff. So we'll talk about that and where that stands. And we'll also continue our discussion about what's gone on this week in the whole K2, K3 filing issue, uh, you know, situation, I guess that's what we'll call it, going on here. That's caused a lot of angst out there among various people who work in taxes. And we'll talk about where we stand on that, what it appears is going on in that area, and maybe a little bit about what could be happening in the future. But let's start with our first issue here, and this is the IRS. Research credit claims on amended returns frequently asked questions. And what happens here is the IRS updated their webpage on February 9th. And the new webpage, or I should say new, it is the current webpage, but this is updated. We've had it before. And this webpage contains information about the IRS and the research credit, right? Now, this was posted back when they first started this program. It's been updated. It has various questions, various items to discuss about the research credit. What we're going to be interested in today, though, is if you scroll down to the top part, the guidance for including the five items of information on amended returns, you would notice if you'd been to this page before that we now have been added here just recently, questions 13, 14, and 15. These are our three new questions that are going to deal with the research credit in some way, shape, or form. And so we'll talk about this, providing this information. So first question is going to deal with, and we'll talk about this here for a second, but we'll look at this. And it's going to deal with the question about what happens if you have the research credit that arises on a pass-through entity that's revising its return. 
what exactly is the equity holder's responsibility? Because obviously the money is going to come back when the equity holder files his or her return or files his or her amended return, as the case may be. And that's going to get them the money back, right? We're going to get a credit on the current return. And we'll talk about how that would work with a BBA audit or a BBA AAR, or we're going to go back and amend those prior returns. And that amended return is going to generate our refund. And the question becomes, where do we attach the five items, right? Do we attach them to the pass-through entity return? Or does every equity holder, partner or shareholder have to attach them? And as we'll discover here, and we'll go show you the details here, but if we have an entity that's subject to a Bipartisan Budget Act Centralized Partnership Audit Regime audit, right, they didn't opt out, potentially because they couldn't, they had a partner that was not out, that blocked them from opting out because it wasn't an eligible partner, or because, you know, they just didn't do it, right, forgot to do it, didn't want to do it, then the partnership will attach that information. However, if it's not that, and that would include any S corporation is obviously not under the BBA audit regime. If you're not a partnership, you're not there. Then the individual equity holder is the one who will attach that information. And the IRS describes this when we get into the materials, I should say, get into this. The IRS describes this here in question 13. And you'll notice if you see, if you're watching on the screens, if you're on audio, obviously you're not seeing this, but question 13 which again shows an updated date of February the 8th, right? The first paragraph under question 13 tells us very simply that if we had a BBA partner, right? BBA, right? We don't follow a return. The BBA partnership will file its administrative adjustment request. It will then submit form 8985 and 8986 to the IRS and 8986 to the partner. 8986 is the let's say, very, very rough equivalent of the K-1 of sorts that goes out at this, right? Again, right, it's, now the BBA partnership is not required to provide those five items on the 8985 and 8986 because it provided them in the administrative adjustment request. And for that reason, if you have a BBA partnership using the administrative adjustment request process, you as the partner will not need to attach those five items to your return. In essence, the IRS will deal with the credit claim at the partnership level. However, if you don't have a BBA partnership, because maybe you have an S corporation, right? Um, TEFRA partnership, maybe it goes back to TEFRA. They're going to say that too. Maybe it's possible. Maybe you got, as I said, a, B, a partnership that opted out of BBA. Then, the non-BBA audit may include the five items with its amended returns. May, doesn't have to. What's going to happen here is those five items are going to show up on the individual partner's amended return. So probably the partnership will provide that. It will then be attached to the individual returns. That means it will be more complicated if you're trying to do the claim for, if you're trying to do like a research credit study and file the claim for refund for each of the partners, each of the shareholders, they're going to have more information to attach to their amended returns. And conceivably, the whole question will be kind of relitigated, shall we say, at each level as to whether they have adequately disclosed that information as well as whether or not, you know, the, we have a supportable claim. The real hitch here, though, is if that partner kind of slops it through or their preparer slops through uh, a refund claim, the statute could run on them. So, I mean, be aware of that.
If you have those situations, you're doing a research credit claim, and let's say you represent the S corporation, you want to make sure that you give clear instructions to your shareholders, especially those where you will not be doing the amended return, about the fact that this information absolutely must be part of their amended return. In essence, it's not going to be okay uh, for them to kind of forget about that, you know, do, do it a little differently and just kind of slop it through. Yeah, it's required in essence. Well, not required. You just won't be paid your claim, which probably is not going to be a good thing in the eye of the S corporation shareholder or in the eye of the, you know, in the eye of the S corporation potentially will be yelled at for this. So I'm going to assume that's there. And you don't want to get in this finger pointing issue where the tax preparer for the shareholder claims, well, the partnership should have taken care of this. The S corporation should have taken care of this back and forth, give clear instructions, tell them they've got to hand that to their preparer and tell them if they fail to do this, the IRS may very well, in fact, has committed to simply throwing the claim out and they could lose their rights entirely to be able to claim the refund. You know, make it as scary as possible as we had phrased it. So hopefully somebody pays attention on that end. And this brings us to the next key point. They're going to talk about e-filing and amended return. Now, as we know, when we go to e-file amended return, right, we just go and we make the changes. It goes up electronically. Apparently, some people were thinking, hey, wait, if we e-file the amended returns, then we don't, have to, we don't have to put this stuff in, right? We can just ignore this stuff because it's electronically done. And that could be electronically done at the entity level. It could be electronically done for the individual partners for these amended returns uh, for, let's say, the S corporation shareholders or the partners. And so the question became, well, you know, do we really have to attach it in those cases? I think most of us are not going to be surprised at the IRS's answer for this. Yeah. Question 14, you have to attach it. There is no option. It must be attached to the return. This is not something where you can just kind of, you know, ignore that problem and say, hey, I did electronically. I can skip all of this. Now, nah, it, it matters. You're, you're going to have to attach that information. It will not be optional. Finally, we've got our question, when, when can we go to appeals? You know, what about this issue? Remember, we're going to submit this claim to the IRS. The IRS, claim, the IRS is going to say, hey, wait, wait, you don't have the proper five items. Okay. Now, if they kick that back to us, can we go to appeals on that issue on its own, right? Up front, can we just go and say, you know what? The IRS is dead wrong. We submitted that, those items and what we submitted was in line with this or it's not the IRS is simply out of line requiring this stuff, etc., etc. Can we challenge that at appeals? Well, remember, we're getting our answer from the IRS and remember their goal. So I think you can figure out the answer, but I'll give it to you anyway from this point, right? The IRS position is, uh, you know, refund claims. And here's the way you got to read this carefully. If they've actually decided that you filed your claim too late, the claim was okay, right? But you filed it after the last day for filing. That question can go to appeals. However, what cannot go to appeals uh, is that it was rejected for being deficient or non-processable. Now, this does raise an interesting question. If, let's say, you submitted or the, you, know, you take over a client who submitted a deficient petition and the IRS has kicked it back and said, sorry, no good. There could be a question of whether you could, if you're outside of, and we'll talk a little bit about the second paragraph here in a second, 
But if you're outside of the grace period and you're outside of the time for filing the claim, could you file a claim knowing it will be rejected as not timely and then take the timeliness to appeals? That may be a backdoor way in. Whether, whether you'll succeed is a whole different question, but it may be a backdoor way in to at least get appeals into the mix. Now, the problem is the IRS belief is, though, that you've simply failed to file. It's like trying to go to appeals right now on a claim for refund for the average person on a, you know, 1992 tax return. That statute long gone cold. There is nothing to go to appeals because there is no jurisdiction. It's a deficient claim to begin with. So that's their position. Now, as they tell you in the second paragraph here, right, for one year we have this 45-day claims, right, and this is, remember, the deficient claim notices will come through letters 6426C or 6428. I do love how the IRS, you know, I mean, we all kind of know where to look for those codes, uh, but it's like that, that'd be clear to the average taxpayer that, oh, it's a letter 6426C. And actually, do they know where to look to see where that is, where that code is down that corner? That'd be okay. Again, they give you information to go look at their press release, the uh, the grace period, the end of the grace period, that sort of situation. So they're talking about that and how it will work. But be aware of that. The IRS position is this is not appealable. The question of whether you complied with the five items is basically not something you can appeal. You would have to at least get to the point where you submitted a claim that had the five items and then appeal whether that was non-timely. The argument there would be, well, it was timely because the original claim represented essentially an informal claim that should qualify under the law, and therefore, you know, we should be able to continue this issue and this discussion, and that, you know, we should get a ruling on this. You know, basically, do we get the credit or not? We, we really are in time. I don't know that'll go far at appeals, but at least it would let you in the door and give you a possibility of appeals doing something. I'd probably talk in those cases with uh, counsel because the case is you may very well be in a point where if that gambit doesn't work, your only option is going to be to actually litigate and go to the U.S. District Court. Okay, next up, we do have a new development here. There's going to be partnerships losses in excess of partners' basis. A large business and international active campaign that was announced on February 8th. Now, there's not a lot in terms of an announcement. It simply says, yeah, we got one. And talks very little bit, one sentence about what this is about. But it was a new campaign posted on the IRS's website. And it's looking at the limitation on claiming losses by a partner under Section 704D, you know, basically due to, you know, computation of basis under 705. So it is a basis issue. Are taxpayers claiming losses in excess of what they're allowed due to their basis? So that's the key part of this transaction. The IRS concern is that partners have been sloppy and preparers have been sloppy and simply claim losses anytime they show up on the K-1, having no concern whatsoever for whether there is sufficient basis. In many cases, nobody has a computation of basis for the partner. And the IRS is saying, well, th this is it. Time for us to get serious about this. There are other limits. You know, there is at risk, which a lot of people confuse with basis. It's a somewhat different limit. 
and the big difference is going to be there's a different thing that happens if we have a reduction in amount at risk as opposed to if we have a deemed distribution that reduces basis. World works a little differently in those two scenarios. But that's there also passive activity losses. Would an agent potentially look at those if they're going into this program? My guess is, yeah, agents may look there. But this program is not looking for an at-risk problem. It's not looking for a passive activity problem. It's looking specifically at a basis issue. So essentially, you're going to know the agent's going to come in wanting right away one thing for sure. We want to see the computation of basis, and we want you to be able to tie that out. In theory, the partner has been maintaining this. I say this is technically what's required. Let's, let's be very clear here. This is not the IRS insisting on something the law doesn't require. The law requires the partner have a computation of basis. The partner must keep adequate records to support that. The records to support your basis literally need to go back to when you first got your interest because it's a cumulative run. It's like earnings and profits in a C-Corp. It's a running figure, right? I need to know how much did I invest? What have been the pass-through income loss items? What have been distributions? And have I made more capital contributions? I need to run that through to the start of the year. Then that's the point at which we can figure out if I had enough basis this year to claim the loss. So they're going to be looking at that. It is not a partnership requirement. And I want to make that clear because our software has been doing it in many cases. It'll do it you know, by default or if you ask and give each partner a computation of basis that they, you know, in theory, can then use. Be careful relying on that. couple of reasons. First thing is I've definitely seen ones that were clearly wrong that were prepared by whoever prepared the partnership return. And secondly, that one-page sheet for this year does not prove the beginning basis on that sheet is correct. So either I need to have a sheet for every year, have these, and they should probably be part of the permanent file if you are quasi-relying on them. You should have every one from the first day they bought in the partnership to prove this basis. I'm going to need that or I need records going there. Remember, you might say, wait, 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 statutes close. Statutes don't matter except for claims for refund or the IRS trying to assess tax against a year that's outside the statute. But anything, I don't care if it's 25 years ago, to the extent it affects the statute. If you've owned this partnership interest for 25 years, everything that happened over the last 25 years basically affects the computation of your basis. You need to be able to prove, bring that forward all the way. Remember your burden, and the burden's on you. What's going to happen in these exams, I expect, is if you can't meet that burden, there's simply going to disallow all losses. That'll be the IRS's default move, saying, well, you can't, you have no idea if you have basis, therefore you have no justification for claiming this loss. Oh, and by the way, as long as we're here, we're also going to say you have no justification for excluding any of that distribution from your income. Right? We're going to think that's a distribution in excess of basis. So, yeah, we get into that. My guess is, and I saw some people upset about this because they were saying, well, wait, wait, wait. They told us two years ago they wanted tax basis capital accounts, and now they're coming back and talking about outside basis. What is this? And no, the two aren't really. Uh, there's a reason for this. Again, the tax basis capital account does not establish your outside basis. And 
That's why a lot of people wondered why was the IRS worried about that two years ago. My take on that is fairly simple. The IRS is looking for a rough and ready way to figure out likely candidates for a basis exam. And one of the ways to find that, you know, if I've got a partnership here and my tax basis capital is $200,000 and I'm claiming a $10,000 loss, that's probably not a good candidate for this exam if I'm the IRS. But if I'm claiming that $10,000 loss and my tax basis capital is negative 200 grand and I've been claiming losses for years and I have very little, you know, debt allocated to my account, I, that's a real candidate as to how did you claim that loss? Now, it, there may be a justification. You may have a 743B adjustment, but hey, wait a minute. You got 743B adjustment, remember? That should be on the K-1 somewhere, you know, if it affected this year's income, there should be some 743B adjustment on the K-1. What I'm saying is this sets up the ability for the service, assuming the computer's been set up for this. And my guess is that's part of the theory. That's why this project got going and why this is not accidental, that the IRS will be able to identify, not necessarily for sure they're, mis they're taking losses they shouldn't, but returns where, let's say, you got a bit of explaining to do about how in the world they have sufficient basis. So that's definitely something that you need to be aware of as we go there. Now, remember we talked back at the end of January about the IRS suspending one notice, right, that they did before, right? Back on January 27th. This is the IRS put on their website, a news release actually, 202231 that they're going to continue to work to help taxpayers and suspend the mailing of additional letters. You remember back January 27th, the IRS stopped mailing the letter that says, hey, we got this $22,000 credit. Uh, we don't know what to do with it. And you never filed your 2021 or 2020 return. And of course, that $22,000 was the amount that was due on your 2022 return. This was a taxpayer that filed in paper maybe because they had to, related to other processing problems that may have stopped them from, from being able to get this return cleared through electronic filing, or at least they didn't understand the trick to get it filed. But that number is identically what's on the return. Obviously, they got the return because they got the check, which was in with the return, which they're now telling us they, have, they don't know where to apply it. Well, they did decide to stop those. Those were just getting embarrassing for the IRS. Right, it, there was a whole slew of them, it got stopped. But they had told us then that they really had no way to stop other notices, right? They couldn't, some required by law, then it would, you know, the world would end, etc. if they did it because their computers are so old. And it was somewhat of a, you might as well say it was kind of a whiny uh, notice on the website that put this in, look at the wonderful thing we're doing. And by the way, and then whining, about, and then telling you why they can't do anything else and whining. You may remember the AICPA responded, was rather, uh, shall we say, uh, shall, shall we say unhappy with the IRS response and suggested that they, you know, they didn't buy it and that they should do more. Okay, well, all that goes on. On the 9th of February, we now do actually have the IRS expanding this notice, right? And we're now going to expand this to cover both individuals and business return issues in special categories. 
Now, this particular notice that we have is going to be, let me get here. There it is from the IRS's website. You can see this uh, if you've got the video version. You see it on screen, right? We have that. And, you know, it's got the standard thing. Starts with the standard paragraph about the wonderful sorts of things we're doing. We're trying to help everybody, etc. Um, you know, in essence, and they're saying some of these mailings that are causing problems include balance due notices and unwild filed return notices, right? Uh, you know, they have several returns not processed. By the way, it was reported this week that number of unprocessed things has grown to 27 million. So it actually got worse since the December numbers. So this is not improving. This is getting worse. That doesn't make us feel good about this season. And that was reported by the National Taxpayer Advocate this month. So that, that, that's kind of bad, shall we say, as we go that. We have the standard statement from the commissioner about all the wonderful efforts they're doing. Now, the big thing I'm going to say is the notices on this page, this is where they told us what they're going to do, right? Uh, they're going to temporarily stop until the backlog is worked through. The IRS will continue to assess the inventory of prior year's returns to determine the appropriate time to resume the notices. So, we're stopping. We don't know for how long, but we are stopping the notices, right? And the theory is they're going to stop and hold them until they work the backlog. Now, they do warn you that you may still, you might go ahead, go to your mail on Monday, and your client got a notice. One of these notices is supposed to be stopped, right? If you get one of these during the next few weeks, apparently they don't think they can stop them instantly. Uh, they're saying generally there is no need to respond, to call or respond to those notices, right? As the IRS will continue to process prior year tax returns as quickly as possible. So essentially they're saying if the notice is wrong, ah, just ignore it. I know it says they're going to levy all of your stuff, but don't worry about that. That's easier said than done for your client to say, don't worry about a, a notice that claims they're going to take my bank account. But nevertheless, that's the IRS's issue. Now, the IRS does note, if you know, if in fact you know your client does owe the IRS 200 grand, it might be best to work that right now. Indirectly, I'll say what they're really saying is we're not going to be waiving penalties, interest, etc. during this time period just because we stopped sending notices, right? The idea is that you, you should work to fix this, right? We'll do this, uh, you know, and they also say, in some special cases, they may have uh, notices to particular taxpayers to resolve specific compliance issues. I don't like that sentence because it leaves open the question that one of these suspended notices, in theory, could be real. It doesn't say the IRS is going to, um, you know, tell us it's a real one, not, not one of these that was in the suspended program. I'm a little concerned about that, but that's what's there. Then it, it does still have a little bit of the whiny paragraph, but at least, at least it's only one paragraph this time. And to a certain extent, obviously it's correct. They can't stop all notices as many are legally required to be issued within a certain time frame. They are assessing other changes, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, it didn't spend paragraphs telling us about, you know, essentially why these limits were so awful and, you know, they had to do these in time frames, they needed congressional action and how their computer systems were outdated and how you know they, that would break things if they stopped doing it, et cetera, et cetera. We got, all, we got rid of most of that in this one, okay? That's gonna be the big issue. Now, the other thing is this page does have all of the notices that are suspended. Now, the first one is one we already had done, right? 
the CP80 unfiled tax return. That's that notice that they stopped back in January. So that one, yeah, it's on the list. But they're also stopping the other unfiled return notices, the first, second, and final notice of return of delinquency. That's the CP59, 516, and 518, uh, and the Spanish versions of 759, 616, and 618. Uh, also, balance due notices, uh, the first, second, and the third with intent to levy, the CP501, 503, and 504 notices, as well as the withholding tax compliance letter 2802C, uh, where they've been identified as underwithholding federal taxes from their wages. Uh, this is how to properly correct their withholding. That letter will also not be issued going forward. For business taxpayers, we're really just going to be looking at limiting the return delinquency notices, the 259 and the 518, or in Spanish, the 959 and the 618. And that's there where they have no record of a prior return being filed. The IRS will not issue those notices at this point until they get until they get their backlog worked. So useful things to know, again, on the IRS website. Uh, as I say, they love putting things there, so that's where we're going. But that's how we are. Okay, next up, let's talk about an update of the K2, K3 situation, right? This continues to be a kind of an interesting issue that we have, which is K2 and K3. And one of the key issues that we did have with K2, K3 initially, right? You may remember that, right? The IRS issued updated information. We'll talk about that, you know, where the IRS said on their website, or basically said at this point that they had that. And so what happens here was, you may remember we've talked about this in the more recent weeks. We have this notice of changes to the partnership schedules K2 and K3. Uh, the big thing that became a problem was they added a big note into who must file, right, to indicate all of those issues and tell them about all of this stuff. And it made it very clear how this gone. And in the partnership instructions, when you followed up this note that was added to who must file, if you followed this note up on the partnerships, you then noticed that something had been in the original instructions, that if you weren't told by your partners that they either were not going to be filing Form 1116, you know, or basically they had no credible taxes, or they were eligible to elect not to file 1116, even though they had a credible taxes, because you know they, they had less than 600, 300, or met, and met certain criteria, that essentially you were going to have to complete Schedule K-2 parts two, parts three at a minimum, and provide information as required there. Generally on part two, information about gross receipts and deductions. And part three, information generally about interest is going to be where the most often you're going to have to provide information because interest under the, if you get, in many situations, if you're doing 1116, you're supposed to have allocated interest based on asset values for the various types of things you were doing. And that means you need that information. Now, I understand that probably nobody was doing that. Doesn't matter. It was required. That's in there. So this created our crisis. Now, interestingly enough, on the S-Corporation uh, revised instructions, again, we had a simpler note, but again, tells us that, right? And again, told us if an S-Corporation shareholder claims a credit for foreign taxes paid by the shareholder, the shoulder may need information from the S-Corporation to complete Form 1116. Now, the more interesting part about the S-Corporation, I'll note to you right now, is you can read this changes, 
but also go back to the original S corporation instructions, which again have not been modified, neither have the partnerships. But unlike the partnerships that if you got to page seven, you found this idea, you had to assume your partners needed the information unless you got information from each partner that made it clear they didn't need that information. For the S Corp, it really doesn't say that. In fact, for the S Corp, it's kind of interesting if we look at the instructions themselves. You see how well this is going to come up on the screen. Probably not terribly well for those of you watching, uh, but I, I think I can expand it up so it looks okay, right? There's this interesting issue on page one that says, right? Note, except as otherwise required by statutes, regulation, or other IRS guidance, an S corporation is not required to obtain information from its shareholders to determine if it needs to file each of these parts. It is not clear, I would say, but certainly that would strongly suggest that while an S shareholder may need that information, and if an F shareholder files that return, the partnership is supposed to provide that information, nothing ever says the partnership has to assume the, the S-Corp shareholder needs that information. So it appears on the S side that this may be less of an issue. I'm not sure I want to bet on that. I'll be very honest. I'm not sure I want to, but if, you're, if you really don't want to do this, you could discuss with your client the position based on the instructions and the updates that it appears that the S Corp doesn't have to assume that the part, you know, the other shareholders have a issue and therefore uh, the S Corporation may not be, may not be at risk if it just doesn't do the K2, K3. That comes with one huge caveat. If the S Corporation officer is a, who signs the return is a shareholder and that shareholder has the 1116 on their return and they don't qualify for the exception, that's going to make it much tougher because the officer knows for his or her return that the information is needed. So you do want to discuss with whoever's signing the return, if you're going to go this path, that at least they can say clearly that they're not going to need an 1116. Because again, remember, the officer signing signs under penalties of perjury and the S corporation will be assumed. In reality, I also think there may be a problem with any officer because, again, there may be the IRS may be able to easily make the case that there's an assumed, you know, the S corporation is assumed to have the knowledge of its officers because the officers run the corporation. And so if the officers, you know, should have, the S corporation should have doing due diligence, at least had its officers, you know, be aware of this and the officers should have raised the issue. So, again, I don't know how far you want to take that. I'm just going to tell you. That is a possible option if you have an S-Corp with a lot of S-Corporation shareholders that you don't file the return for. Okay, just, just say it as that. I've, there are definitely issues and there's definitely risks in that, in that realm. So you definitely want to make sure that you have this, you know, taken care of there as we've done it. Okay. Well, the other thing coming up is software vendors are now working up a way to do this. You may remember there was a big crisis concern because you read your software vendor's information and it said, you know, the form K2 would be available, you know, not available yet, expected to be available, it would say for the partnership, you know, March 20th. Well, that's 15, that's five days after the due date. And for S corporations, sometime in the middle of June, which is way after the due date. And of course, you know, panic ensued. 
Well, part of the reason why panic ensued is because the IRS had actually dealt with this before we got to tax season. Uh, the only problem is, I think most people had assumed, I think our tax preparation software companies had assumed, like a lot of their customers, that this didn't apply to anybody that didn't wasn't already knee-deep in foreign transactions, and those returns would never be timely filed, so wasn't really going to be an issue, and they could wait for the ability to file the standard MEF XLS, or the MEF XML, get that right, uh, data for these forms when the IRS released this. Well, as we say, with everybody having to file, this caused a major crisis because it appeared that because of this, we would be unable to file any of these returns. You know, partnerships could not be filed till the end of next month, and S-Corps would be into the summer, right? And especially for CPA firms or other tax preparation firms that build these S-Corporations and partnerships when they complete the job, that would be a huge negative tax, you know, a huge negative issue on cash flow. And also, we all know it, right? People are writing, emailing. You know, you write now saying, when will the K-1s be done, right? When, when, when will we have our partnership return ready? When will we have our S-Corp return ready? And, you know, they're, they're wanting it right now. Probably the ones who always want it right now are the ones who think they've got a refund coming on their return. They want to get it filed. So that's what's there. Well, the IRS had back in December, back when we didn't think any of this mattered, they had submitted, you know, a interim solution. And interesting part is the interim solution was announced at the same time they announced this dates when we expected to have these forms available. So on their website, you know, we have this K2, schedules K2 and K3, interim electronic filing for tax year 2021. And again, this issue, they talk about the instructions. Again, most people have decided that we don't have foreign stuff we didn't need to. So we ignored that. But here it is, right? We are told that modernized e-file, right? It's not going to be available at the beginning of the 2022 filing system in January 2022. Uh, rather, we're going to be able to do K2 and K3 based on the dates of March 20th for Form 1065, sometime in the middle of June for 1120S and January of 2023 for Form 8865, which means if you're having to file the 8865 variant of the partnership return, that, that thing is not even going to be ready for this year. So it's like, you know, that's totally gone. But what they told us right here was that if you electronically file your return before the time frames, which is called the interim period, submit the schedule as separate PDF files attached to the return. So, it is not true you cannot electronically file an S-corporation return or a partnership return today where their S-corporation or partnership is required to file K-2 or K-3. You can. However, it is filed by creating PDF files for the Schedule K-2 for the S-corporation or partnership and PDF versions of the Schedule K-3 for each partner or S-corp shareholder and submitting those along with the return. Now, as I said, our software appears to have assumed that they could skip that process uh, because it was going to be ready by the time it was, by the time people would actually file these things, assuming that it was only going to affect those with significant international operations uh, that already have the ability to do it the traditional way, the 
MEF XML way, and so there was no point in developing a PDF backstop. Then we got the January changes. People went back, started rereading the requirements, especially in partnerships, and mass panic ensued because we saw the you know, the tax software vendors had these dates in their systems and we all go look there to see, you know, when will assert, when will UltraTax, when will, uh, you know, access be ready to do this form. That's where we go. And we were seeing these dates and panic ensued. We are now seeing all, at least all these, you know, in some way, shape or form, virtually every software vendor is moving toward the PDF option, Right. Currently, I believe UltraTax has officially implemented it for both S-corporations and partnerships at this point. Uh, LaCert's implemented, but I think there's a little bit of a glitch in the way they did it initially, so it's probably going to be fixed sometime here very soon, but they're ready for it. Uh, CCH for ProFX and Access has indicated that the February 20th update of their software will have this. Drake is said, at least to at least one person who uses it that I talked to, they were told that they're working on it in sometime in mid to late February they'll be going, so probably around the CCH time frame. Uh, I had heard some discouraging news, but I think it may be updated here shortly, from one person who had talked to ATX and discovered that they were saying, oh, no, no, we're just not going to support the form at all this year. Uh, they may back off that. We'll see what happens. You know, I don't know how that'll change. But it does seem like most of the vendors now, you know, certainly the Intuits, you know, if, if you have the, you know, basically at least the higher end professional packages, mid to higher end professional packages from Intuit and Thomson Reuters and CCH, it appears that those definitely are moving toward it. I would expect everybody else to get there because, you know, their initial assumption, which is probably what they gave the customer support people to start the year, was that, yeah, this isn't going to apply. We're just not doing it. You know, you're a company that basically, let's say, does, you know, you're, you're a simpler, simpler returns, ones that aren't as complicated. You may have said, yeah, we're just going to skip this, right? Our, our customers don't prepare S corporations that have this issue or partnerships that have this issue. They may need to rethink that. But that, that's where we stand on that issue. So be aware of that. Just be aware we're ready to go. But yeah, check your software vendor. You know, see what they're doing. If you are, and make sure you're applying updates as soon as possible. If you're looking to file this, you need to get the updates into your system as soon as possible. I realize there's a risk in loading the update. It may very well brick the system. You may be reinstalling the software, you know, to get things back and running, which will make you very unpopular in your office if you do that. But if you want to get these filed, you're going to have to take the updates and get those things together. So keep your eyes open. Different vendors have different approaches for updates. Um, I know we used to use CCH's products, ProFX, and they have a very strict update schedule that generally is, you know, once a week this time of year, and it's always on Sunday. Uh, we have other vendors, like when we went to Thomson Reuters with UltraTax, they tend to drop updates all the time. So you have to just keep watching and applying updates, and so it could basically be released at any point in time. I think LaCert's more along that line as well. So you just have to be aware of when your vendor updates things and what it's going to mean. Okay, let's talk a bit. Well, is there any chance that all of this could change? Well, it looked like possibly. Now, I'd heard about this coming and it sounded good 
and it's still a good thing, but I just wish it had been more focused. I have a couple of concerns, but we do have a letter that went from 30 senators to the IRS that mentions this issue. Now, the couple of problems that we have, one, the letter spends, and we can go ahead and show it to you. It was actually, uh, you know, it, it's a letter that's, you know, the prime signer, the first signer, and that's how you can tell kind of who starts these things, is Senator Mike Crapo of Idaho. And so it was a letter from, you know, a number of, and in this case, which becomes somewhat important to, especially in election year, you know, all those signing were Republicans, but they're pretty much, uh, you know, giving the same complaints we had earlier. So this is a letter to the Treasury Secretary and to the IRS Commissioner, right? Now, this letter was issued on February 10th, talks about all these delays, right? It talks about what they're doing. It talks about the problem. And then it starts listing these issues. They have recommendations that they want them to do. And they want to have the IRS halt automated lien and, livery, lien and levy issuance uh, for a meaningful period of time. That appear, they appear to at least be notices in that area for, lien, for levies. Those notices are slowed down. Uh, we'll see if the IRS believe liens can be. Uh, delay the collection process. And there's some of that they have did, you know, like the day before, two days before. Uh, penalty relief, that's something IRS has not done yet. Uh, Expedite processing the returns. That's one that's kind of interesting. That's easier said than done. You know, it's like, yeah, you know, you, you know, if, if you're a if you're out there, let's say you're a runner, you're, you're trying to train to run and you're working up toward the marathon. It's not like the first day you go out, why don't you just, just run the marathon? It's like, well, no, that's probably not going to work on day one. Uh, and that's part of our problem here. Expediting. It's one thing to say expedite the processing. The problem is, of course, coming up with the how, you know, how we're going to do that. Uh, communicate the statute of operations, processing time, how far behind you are, number of cases. Yeah, the stats would be good. But then the final issue is consider modifying the implementations of the K2 and K3 to focus on clearing the backlog instead of adding more complexity. Unfortunately, it's the last thing issued. Unfortunately, it is not really discussed elsewhere in the letter. And even that phrased it more in terms of uh, you know, yeah, you don't have time to do this right now. But once you have time, apparently we don't object to you doing it. I don't think, I, I, th I think most of us would, would have preferred a letter that went straight and said, and I suspect at that point you've had more trouble getting 30 people to sign on. You know, it would have been more interesting. I, I think this had to. I think some of this may be, if I'm a little skeptical, uh, maybe in response to some of these people had not signed on to the letter from the 25 senators uh, that went out with the letter from 190 represent representatives, you know, that basically blasted the IRS to stop the madness in terms of notices. Uh, and that, that came out back in January. So there may be a little bit of, I, I need to show I did something about this at this point. So I will say that's part of it. Uh, but definitely it's still a problem. Everything they're talking about here is still an issue uh, and cer certainly deserves attention. But I would have liked to have had a more focused letter like the one that went out this week as well on the LIFO inventory problem facing car dealers uh, who, turns out they ran out of inventory. And if you're on LIFO, running out of inventory is not, not a good thing at all. And so, you know, because, yeah, you, you chew through the bottom layers. And so there, there's a push by some individuals, some senators are writing saying, we need to have you guys, IRS, you need to focus on this now. Time is running out. The question that's going to be here is, though, for the K2, K3, 
even if the IRS were to try to act on this, the question is going to be, when would they give us this relief? And at what point does it not matter anymore? Unfortunately, remember our extensions for the April 15th deadline the last two years have come so late in the game, who cared? Right By that point, we'd already committed. You can't just be sitting here today saying, I think they're going to, I, I, I think they're going to extend the April 15th deadline, so I'm just not going to worry about tax season too much, right? Nobody did it that way. The same thing here. If you've got a client that you know, you're going, you know, that wants to file the partnership return on time, wants to file the S-corp return on time, does not want to go for an extension, which is going to be the case in a lot of these cases. We won't want an extension. The problem's going to be we are passing this week, right? This is the Valentine's Day edition, right, on the 14th. So Tuesday, if you're listening to her later, we're then going to be within a month of the time for filing that return, for getting that partnership return out. And because that month includes the end of February, meaning we're short days, uh, time's running out. The clock's ticking. I'm not sure how long we can wait, hoping that they pull the K2, K3 issues. I think at this point, if you're going to put on extension anyway, then okay, yeah, no, no problem. But then it's not really an issue right now. If you're not, if you're planning on getting it out on time, you know, then it's more of a problem. Right. I don't think I think unless the IRS were to issue K2, K3 relief like today, I think you're going to have to start working this as if it's there. If it's not, you dump it. Just like back in 2015, we were working on all those form 3115s for change of accounting method for the changes in the capitalization rules. And yes, the IRS uh, just about this time of year said, oh, yeah, just kidding. You know, if you're a small company, we're going to let you just keep depreciating the old stuff under the old rules. No, you don't have to update that. Just update the new stuff. And it's one of those, this would have been really nice to know about six months ago situations. Uh, this could be that. Definitely could be that. Definitely possible. But you got to answer the question of how long can you wait on the hope that that might happen and still be able to complete the returns that you're committing to get out by the due date if it doesn't happen. So that's your choice, unfortunately, or I should say fortunately, at least for me sitting here. I have to deal for my clients. You have to deal with it for yours. Okay. Finally, uh, articles, I think these are more likely than the letter to trip this because th this is something that the IRS tends to read and feels they have to respond to. And also, uh, th this is also something that People who are on finance and ways and means and their staff are likely to watch these publications. Both Bloomberg Tax and Tax Notes this week had articles on the, you know, the K2 fiasco, K2, K3 fiasco. And the um, where this is really blown up, of all things, is on Twitter. Tax Twitter has been beating this to death. And we def definitely have. I can tell you that for sure. I'm on there. I watch it get beat to death. Uh, but it's also now gotten traction outside of Twitter. And we definitely have, I mean, I've taught courses related to, this is, you know, did, did a quick, what, what was going to be a nice, quick, simple one-hour update, right, that was just going to do as, okay, I, 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 can talk to, I can talk to your group about that, you know, for a state society. It was going to be no big deal. It suddenly ballooned into, you know, an insanely large deal uh, with lots of people. We're, we're seeing... Registrations for the courses I'm be doing 
dealing with this, you know, they, they've been, I've had reports of, yeah, the numbers are getting very good on those courses, or at least if you're, you know, I guess that, that's very good news if you're, you know, the organization sponsoring it because you're, you know, we're getting people to come in and do it. Not necessarily good if you're like in the business of preparing these returns because the reason why it's so good is because everybody is running around like mad trying to find information about this and figure out how to do it. So we have that going on. So it's become a bigger deal. It's leaked outside of Twitter and uh, now everybody's running around. So the IRS responded to tax notes on this issue. As I said, tax notes had an article on Thursday. I actually got called up by the, uh, you know, by the reporter, uh, Christian Perillo, dealing with this before she wrote the article, talking about what was there and what's going on. And so there was this article on Thursday that was, you know, indicated this was a problem causing a lot of confusion and angst. And therefore, the IRS felt like they had to respond to tax notes, which they did. And we have a story from tax notes. It actually is in the 14th edition. But if you're watching this on the weekend, you know, you may be saying, wait, wait, wait. You know, I'm watching th this on the weekend. Uh, you know, I'm watching this. It's not yet the 14th. How in the world do we have this? Well, that, that's the way you do publishing, right? It calls it the 14th edition. On the February 14th edition, there is a story, again, written by Christian, uh, that talks about the IRS and their response to this, right? The IRS basically submitted a, um, a response, and they said they recognized these changes called short-term challenges, especially for flow entities and their preparers. Well, yeah. <laughs> okay, we, we accept that. You're, you're aware. Now, their response is also documented in here, right? Uh, you know, now there, again, this is the IRS move just like we had at February 27th. The initial response is defensive, right? They're saying first, which I knew would be the defense is we're not really asking for anything new. In theory, all this information should have been on an attachment to the K-1s going back for decades. The fact it wasn't and the fact that nobody seemed to raise that issue on exam is considered irrelevant, okay? But in theory, in theory, this was something that was going on for all this time, okay? These are, they talked about the fact they did issue notice 2021-39 that we discussed last year that gave some relief uh, for reasonable cause for not completing and doing this, right? You know, falling short, if they make a good faith effort to comply. Now, let's be a little critical of that statement. What's causing our problem right now is the presumption on the S on the partnership returns that every partner needs all information from a form 1116. And we have to make that assumption unless the partner tells us they have no credible foreign taxes or they have them, but they qualify for the election to not file the 1116 and just take the credit directly on Schedule 3 of Form 1040. So the problem is the good faith effort to comply, basically you got to try to get that data. If you don't file fill in K2, you didn't make a good faith effort to comply unless you had that information because you were told without that information, you have to fill in the form. That's what you've been told. So I'm going to say notice 2021-39 does not really address this issue in any meaningful fashion. 
I think it does, maybe on the S-Corp, we talked about that issue here, why the S-Corp might be able to argue this, but I don't see how a partnership can say, if they just leave it off because, hey, this is crazy, we're a rental, you know, we got, we're a partnership that's running an office building in Grand Island, Nebraska, right? We don't care, right? We have no foreign owners, nothing. We're not paying any foreign contractors. We're not doing anything vaguely foreign. That partnership is going to have to do K2, K3 unless they have that information from each partner. And I think that's why, notice 2021-39, while I think it's useful, uh, it's not, it, not, it doesn't address the issue we need addressed here, right? Uh, the IRS then also gets defense saying, we told you about this back in July of 2020, and you guys had plenty of time to complain. And you didn't. So it's just your fault, guys. You're not paying attention. And that's also disingenuous. The big reason why people mainly didn't notice the problem was that the draft instructions has that sentence that says, you only have to file this if you have items on your return of international tax relevance. Okay. That in and of itself probably would have misled people. But then we compounded the problem that in parentheses says, typically foreign transactions, right? Remember, if the entity has trick, you know, typically foreign transactions or foreign partners. Now, gang, what's causing all of this, what's causing all these huge numbers of extra K-2s to be issued is not foreign transactions by the partnership. It's not foreign partners in the partnership. Those people already knew they were doing this form. What's causing the problem is having partners is basically an item of international, uh, basically, I should say, having gross income is an item of international tax relevance because of the mechanics of Form 1116 and 1118. And that means that any partnership that is actually doing anything has information of international tax relevance, which means Schedule 2, or I should say Part 2 of Schedule K-2, and Part 3 if you have any interest, and some other issues can trigger K-3, like research, experimental expenditures. But again, a lot of those others are not going to be that big a problem. And some of them only would arise if you actually had foreign activities. But if you take a look, just take a look at part two of K-2 and tell me your partnership has no gross receipts. Tell me your partnership has, you know, has no expenses, has no interest that's paying, has no depreciation. You know, has, it's like it's going to have that, has no interest or dividends. Or, short, or capital gains. It has all that stuff. You know, it's going to have some of it, maybe not all, but some of it, which means you have to do it. And that misleading statement on that first page is, I think, the reason why nobody really got all that worked up. Everybody thought it wouldn't really be that big an issue. And yeah, the 1116, we might realize maybe that would be there. But, you know, it's always just been a partner asked for it. So, we, you know, we, we can assume they don't need it unless they make it clear to us they do. And it was only after you said, okay, if you either just said, well, I'm not going to skip reading page one. I've got plenty of time on my hands to read every sentence of every IRS draft instruction issued every year. And I just breezed through reading the rest of this after I got to a who must file that suggested none of my partnerships would have to file. Would I suddenly notice this problem? You know, where I saw that bit about I had to assume everybody needed the K, needed the part two information on Schedule K2. 
So yeah, not, not responsive. Now they do say they're considering to proceed in a matter that's informed and responsive to feedback and plan to issue FAQs to address questions that arise. The only problem with that statement is, first thing is, it does mean we might see relief. But number two, the problem is, of course, it says plans to issue. We do not have any such FAQs right now that give us any sort of relief. So again, keep your eye on that. This is something that, it, you know, we tend to go down the path just like we did with the IRS notices where the IRS starts, you know, being defensive, saying, hey, we did it right. We didn't do anything wrong. And then as pressure builds, they eventually do end up saying, oh, we're going to be really nice to you and we'll do this. That's a possibility, but it is far from assured. There are lots of people going after the IRS right now for lots of things and lots of relief. And to be totally honest, despite the ruckus that the K2 is, it pales in comparison to the backlog and notice issues. And, you know, I'm not sure that the IRS will get around to any K2 relief early enough for it to make a difference to us for anything except those returns going on extension. So that's a great piece of bad news to, uh, you know, kind of bad, 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 shall we say bad, bad news to look at, at least looking at that way to end on. But this has been the update for the week of February the 14th. I want to thank you for, you know, tuning in this week. Uh, if you have any questions, Ed Zollers at CurrentFieldTaxDevelopments.com. We'll be answering, you know, I'll, I'll do any questions you want to do there. I'll be doing a few sessions. I'm doing a couple of sessions for Kaplan this week uh, on the schedule K2, K3. One for Arizona on Wednesday afternoon, uh, which will be a two-hour session. And I'm also doing a session for Kaplan on Friday morning on the East Coast for a, nor for a bunch of Northeast, uh, Northeastern U.S. society, CPA or CPA societies. Uh, be doing that. It'll be the two-hour two-hour session. We'll look at all this craziness and talk about that. So I do have those coming up. We have those in there. You can check your societies for that. Uh, look forward to uh, working on some of the other things uh, coming up. It'd be really nice to get through the rest of tax season without uh, having more of these, you know, special crises things happening. It'd be really nice to be nice and calm for the rest. I also do uh, follow along on Connect sites for Arizona, New Jersey. Minnesota, Illinois, and uh, Washington. Keep an eye there. Also, Idaho's not not connect, but almost connect, or you know, a connect variant, shall we say, a variant of the same idea. Their stuff I do post there, so you can watch some guidance there. We'll try to keep everybody up on the places, and like I said, I've been doing these things, uh, but we will look at you know finishing up our sessions, doing the two-hour Kaplan sessions. I have a few other things going in other venues, but. You know, we're going to talk about the these sessions here that I've got going on uh, that are running that are pretty, you know, going on at this point. So check with that other and be honest, if you can't make those sessions, others, you know, other places, other people are now ramping up and we're starting to see some of these sessions. So there are some options out there. I'd prefer you did it. I'm sure Kaplan before you did it if you did it with a Kaplan session. But obviously there are ways and if it's an interest to you, you probably need to look at a way to get up to speed for something that will fit your schedule and works in there. So I understand that if you can't quite make those days. Otherwise, I'll see you this week. And in any event, I'll see you back next week as we talk about further developments in the areas of current federal tax developments.